So I'm going to start by getting a little bit gross for a minute. Uh, I'm not doing this for shock factor, uh, but to help us kind of get inside of this passage a bit. So I'm gonna, that's going to serve as a trigger warning. Uh, it's a trigger warning for this 30-minute conversation known as a sermon. Uh, it's a trigger warning for this passage and maybe for the whole Bible. Uh, that's what we're doing. Psychologist Richard Beck, along with another psychologist, Paul Rosen, ask us to think of a few vivid hypothetical situations. Okay, here's one. Here's one hypothetical. What if a bug, say a fly or better, a cockroach, flew into your glass of orange juice? And then I leaned over and I stirred it around and then I fished it out with a spoon. Would you drink the juice? No, of course not. But what if we filtered and boiled the orange juice? Would you drink it then? Most people say no. They would not drink the orange juice. Rationally, actually, filtered orange juice is more pure than tap water, even with the conditions that we described. But emotionally, you and I are still very much disgusted. Has anyone gotten up and left yet? <laughs> okay, we're still here. We're still here. Deep breaths. Here we go. Uh, Let's discuss briefly why we react this way and what this has to do with Mark chapter 2. Richard Beck and Paul Rosen study what's called the psychology of disgust. The psychology of disgust. What is it that makes us disgusted and why do we get disgusted about these things? At its most basic, we get disgusted by what makes us fear for our safety. We have what's called a core disgust for certain foods and certain food conditions, right? Like, for instance, when we smell rotten meat, we get a disgusted feeling. Or we have what's called an animal reminder disgust. When we come into contact with illness and death, for instance, if someone's pale and sweaty and in full fever, we tend to avoid that person. But don't miss this. This is the important part. These physical, very biological reactions, uh, these disgusted reactions, translate to a person and socio-moral disgust, social and moral disgust. That is, we get disgusted by interpersonal contact with certain creepy or immoral people, the same way we get disgusted with the cockroach in our orange juice. So if I handed you Adolf Hitler's unwashed sweater, you would get grossed out. And we get disgusted with their and sometimes our thoughts and actions just like the bug in the juice experiment, this disgust is often unconscious, often irrational, as opposed to rational and even theological. And you're sort of going, what is the connection to our passage this morning? Here's the connection. Discuss psychology in our passage this morning. Jesus is intentionally seeking out situations that we find disgusting. He's going to people that we avoid and we shun and he's going to them on purpose. What makes us disgusted, what makes us worried about contamination, a person with a highly contagious skin disease, a leper, for instance, or a person with crippled features like the paralytic that we looked at last week, or in this case, a dishonest, sleazy shakedown artist like a tax collector. These are the very people that Jesus goes after and he hangs out with over long and leisurely meals. And he even sometimes invites these very people to be a part of his executive board. And if we're honest, this makes Jesus 
two things at once, both very disturbing and very attractive. It can be disturbing when we think about only other people, but Jesus can be so attractive when we start to think honestly about ourselves. Here's what all this means. Jesus came to earth and he died on a cross to cast out our disgust with perfect love. Jesus came to heal, he came to heal us not just physically, but also socially and spiritually. And the layout of chapter two in the Gospel of Mark is actually making this point even structurally. Here we see a series of scenes that showcase Jesus' social and spiritual inappropriateness and the way that he heals people. Last week we saw how Jesus didn't just physically heal the paralytic, he also forgave him even without being asked to. This week we see how Jesus calls a man named Levi, also known as Matthew, and he calls him to be his right-hand man. And in so doing, Jesus is answering two questions that we're not even sure that we're asking. And here are the two questions he's answering. First, verses 13 through 15, Jesus shows us how he heals our social diseases and disgust. Second, verses 16 through 17, Jesus shows us why he heals people like us spiritually. So we're going to answer these two questions. Why uh, or how does Jesus heal our social and spiritual disgust? And also, how does he heal people like us spiritually? So that's the outline. Um, it's not in your bulletin, but it's projected behind me, I think. Um, if not, that's okay. Let's begin with verses 13 through 15, and let's look at how Jesus heals our social diseases and disgust. Okay, verses 13 and 14 set the initial scene. Right after Jesus has forgiven and healed a paralytic, this is what it says. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, rose and followed him, Jesus. <laughs> Mark is the master of finding an understated way to describe a scene that cannot possibly be overstated. So let me try to translate what's really going on here. Jesus was walking and talking along an ancient trade route, the way of the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. What this looks like is tripping over their feet to run up to him, kneeing, elbowing, and shouldering their way to get just a closer, better position, or maybe just trotting in the dusty wake of a crowd. They're grabbing at his coat, they're trying to tug at his attention, or maybe they're just attentive, silently straining to hear the words from his lips. And then suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, Jesus beelines it to the closest tax collecting booth and the crowd audibly gasps. Jesus knocks on the wooden window frame and then a head jerks up from inside, maybe from some furious money counting or maybe a bored nap. And Jesus looks Levi in the eyes. He actually sees him, all of him. And Jesus tells this tax collector, probably well-fed and sweaty, maybe he's greasy from a midday meal and living, spending most of his life indoors without air conditioning. Anyway, Jesus tells this tax collector, follow me. And the crowd around Jesus groans in disgust. 
What Jesus does here with Levi might have been more shocking to the people following Jesus than what he did with the leper or the paralytic. They were likely so confused about why Jesus would actually march towards the tax collecting booth. But when they saw his confidence and his sense of purpose, maybe, just maybe, they expected Jesus to just let the tax collector have it. Right? He thought, they thought finally the Messiah, the King of the kings, the Lord of lords, the person who's going to rescue us from Rome, he's going to go over there and he's going to tell that tax collector, give him a piece of his mind. Just like he did to the Pharisees earlier, if not more so because tax collectors were worse. They were the worst. They were moral criminals. Socially, they were dead to any God-fearing Israelite. But instead of a few choice swear words and a patriotic speech that ended in something like, go lick Caesar's boots and get out of my country, you sleazy, you sleazy spineless bag of flesh. Instead of this, Jesus calls Levi a disciple. God incarnate spends his early first round draft pick on a tax farmer. More dishonest and more unfair, far richer than a mere tax collector. The very head of the local Roman military enforced pyramid scheme of tax collection. The Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary in the Old Testament, groups folks like Levi in with the robbers and the murderers. Because people like Levi threaten people with violence financially. They've chosen Rome over Jerusalem politically, and they are excluded from the temple purification and practices of sacrifice religiously. And Jesus nominates that guy, Levi, of all people for his e-board, for his all-star salvation leadership team. Just imagine all of humanity lined up against a chain link fence, like when you were in recess and people were picking teams for kickball. And Jesus chooses the person in that line that looks least capable and, and is certainly the least liked. Jesus says to Levi, follow me, or let me translate, you're my team captain. Help me hold and then pour out my rescue from all physical, social, and spiritual disease. In another gospel account, we're told that Jesus uses uh, the newly minted nickname for Levi, his own nickname, perhaps, for Levi. I'll call you Matthew. It means gift of God. That's your new name. Please use it and write a book of the Bible, the world's all-time best-selling book, and God's very own precious words. You've got to be asking yourself, what in the world is going on here? But here's what I love. Levi slash Matthew, he immediately gets it. He gets what it feels like to be included, to be on the inside with Jesus. We can imagine that Levi's heart belts out something like the chorus to that song that's gotten recast by Luke Combs' Fast Car, right? Right? I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I could be someone, be someone, be someone. That's pulsing in his heart. And Levi, now Matthew, wants everyone that he knows to feel the same way that he feels. 
to feel embraced, to feel loved, to feel socially healed with Jesus. And so he throws a giant feast, a mega house party with many tax collectors and sinners. Really, he just invites anyone who will actually come to his party, which are his co-workers, other dishonest, sleazy, shakedown collection agency folks, and also anyone that his money can buy. Prostitutes and porn stars, toadies and yes-men, muscle and hitmen. And look what Jesus does. Look at how he heals us and Levi socially. He goes and he celebrates where Levi and you and I celebrate. He eats and he drinks with Levi, with you and with me. Jesus parties. He eats and he drinks with people Levi and we want him to be with. Because no one is too bad. Nobody is too freaky. Nobody is too creepy. Nobody is off limits for Jesus. Here's what I think. I think Jesus is spiritually present at that neighbor's house party. You know the one with the gross lawn and the crusty goodwill chairs and the solo cup filled to sloshing with cheap boxed wine? Jesus is at the half-condemned nightclub in Charlotte, dancing with his hands in the air like he just doesn't care. Jesus is chatting in line at the Walmart MoneyGram station. He's posted up at a stool surrounded by adults in full superhero costume at the Charlotte Comic Con, drinking a Shirley Temple out of a mason jar, or maybe a Coors Light in a frosted can. Jesus is also with us in our shuttered bedrooms watching a true crime documentary <clears throat> on Halloween or New Year's Eve or whenever we feel most frumpy or uncool. The point is nowhere is off limits for Jesus. Nowhere is too boring, too bad. Nowhere is too freaky. Nowhere is too creepy. Nowhere is too gross for Jesus to go. I love the way that the writer Francis Spufford puts it. Lost people arouse Jesus' particular tenderness. And all their varieties, people whose bodies and minds don't work properly, people especially mangled by the human propensity to screw things up, people who one way or another fall foul of the purity rules, whether it's their own doing or not, people who live beyond the usual bounds of sympathy because they're ugly or frightening or boring or incomprehensible or dangerous. And he, Jesus, is never disgusted. He never says that anything or anyone is too lost to be found. Wreckage may be written into the logic of the world, but he will not agree that that is all there is. He says, more can be mended than you fear. Far more can be mended than you know. You see, Jesus is not afraid of our social disgust because he refuses to participate in the guilt by association game. So Levi's social condition, our inferiority, does not infect Jesus' social condition by contact. His superiority and his acceptance infects us, actually, by close contact. Our social status doesn't attract and it doesn't scare off Jesus. With him, there is no permanent record except for the one he gives us on the cross. Instead, 
Jesus welcomes Levi into community with just two small words, follow me, and by showing up to his party in his house. And Jesus' love and his joy and his friendship spread to Levi and to his friends forever. Wreckage and contamination, grace and disgust, these are not all there is. More can be mended than you fear. Far more can be mended than you know. So what would it look like? What would it look like for Jesus and his people to show up where Jesus is already celebrating? And all the different parts of Charlotte where we least expect him to be. The sketchy party, the money center line, with that group of people who feels weird and out there, boring and emotionally shut down. What would it look like to see Jesus there and to follow him there? I mean, that charge makes me sweat inside of my button-down shirt. It just does. That's really, if we're thinking about that, that's uncomfortable. But look, the char- that makes me sweat, but I get even more nervous, more clammy, when I think about inviting Jesus and his people into the places in my life when I feel most needy or weird, most out there, most boring or most emotionally shut down. But the truth is I can live differently because there is no risk of social contamination or guilt by association with Jesus. In Jesus, I can endure the awkwardness of being with people who are not like me. I can endure the awkwardness of being people who I do not like. I can get over being canceled by the political left, by the, by the moral right, those I want to impress the most. How? Why? Because Jesus is the kind of God who chooses cheese touch, I've got cooties tax men. And that has once and for all upended the way the world works. And this leads to our second and final point, why Jesus chooses to heal us spiritually. Whether it was physical or social, the point of Jesus' healing was not to show off his power, okay, or even to cure every person in his lifetime or in his just immediate geography. He didn't heal everyone from all the diseases and all the shame that they had. In Mark's gospel, we're shown over and over again Jesus withdrawing himself from the crowd, a crowd of desperate, needy people begging to be healed. In the words of Francis Spufford again, Jesus is leaving behind the vast total of the world's suffering almost unaltered. Only the tiniest inroads made, it, made into it. Only an infinitesimal fraction of it eased. One man doing miracles in West Asia doesn't even move the disease statistics. Jesus answers the charges of his critics, the, 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 the Pharisees in verse 17, 16 and 17. He says this way. He's how, here's how he answers. Yes, he's a doctor come to heal the sick, but physical or even social healing is just scratching the surface. In his words, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Therefore, the healing of bodies is only a sign of what he's truly come to do. The curing of social shame is merely easing of a symptom of a greater core disease. Behind the world's physical diseases like leprosy or paralysis, 
beneath our knee-jerk shunning of other people that we find revolting, like money cheats. Behind these awful diseases and beneath these um, social knee-jerk reactions, we see the problem. The problem is sin. Our sin and their sin, past sin and present sin, and this problem can only be dealt with one way. Jesus has to die as a sacrifice. He has to die as an outcast on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus has to become unclean to make us clean. He was canceled for us to be welcomed. He must be saddled with our human exclusions and oppressions, as well as the selfish and prideful ways we do that to other people every day, all so that our relationships can change for the better, so that we can go from condemning ourselves and condemning other people and even condemning God to a relationship with ourselves and with other people and with God that is inclusive, that is free, and that is welcoming forever. Only then, by embracing this truth, can we practice gospel relationships. Only then can we include our enemies into the community of humanity, even as I include myself in the community of sinners. Sinners, right? Sinners in the sore need of Jesus' saving. And, uh, and I'm also in sore need of other people's patience with the mess that I spill over into their lives over and over and over again. Let me end with this. There's a recent documentary that on Netflix called Saint of Second Chances. It's about a son, Mike Veck, who gets his chance to live up to his father, who's larger than life, Bill Veck. And he gets his chance to prove that he has what it takes to take over his father's business. His father's business happens to be the Chicago White Sox. He's going to say, I want to be an owner just like you, Dad, and here's how I'm going to do it. And so Mike, at this time, is the head of promotions. True story. And he decides to hold a now infamous event to sort of get more people to come to the ballpark. It's called a disco demolition. People in 1977 come to Comiskey Ballpark with all their disco records, and they smash them, and they burn them, and they say, the end of disco is here. And unfortunately for Mike, this becomes mass chaos, and there's tons of damages done to the ballpark between two games of a doubleheader. And so the damage is so bad, and the press is so bad at the time, that the, the Vec family is forced to sell the White Sox baseball team and Mike, the son, is proved to be a disgrace. And so he spends many years in self-imposed, hard-drinking hard exile. But then something extraordinary happens. Mike Veck is given a second chance, an undeserved second chance. He's asked to invest as a co-owner of a minor league baseball team called the St. Paul Saints. And Mike dedicated this team to a sense of goofy fun and, yes, second chances. But it's still surprising when in 1994, his team was asked to give baseball legend Daryl Strawberry 
a second chance. More than a second chance. <laughs> you see, Daryl Strawberry had had everything in the 1980s and even the early 1990s. He had a Hall of Fame baseball swing, a multi-million dollar contract with the San Francisco Giants, the adoration of the public, but it was not enough. He fell victim to a vicious drug habit. He broke multiple laws in multiple states, and he was blacklisted from professional baseball. In fact, he was turned down to play for 206 teams. But Mike Vec, he knew firsthand, he knew personally the power of second chances. And so he gave Daryl Strawberry what he called a fourth second chance. <laughs> and it proved to be salvation in every sense of the word for Daryl Strawberry. Surrounded by Mike Vec's gimmicks, they were hot tubs in the outfield. Disgraced nuns were giving back massages in the stands. And a teammate with no legs was playing as a fielder, Super Dave Stevens. <laughs> Daryl Strawberry, in the midst of all of that chaos, all of that fun, all of that goofiness, he fell back in love with the game of baseball. And more importantly, he fell back in love with the game of life, with life itself, with Jesus. In an interview, Daryl Strawberry puts it this way, I realized I'm just not that darn important. I didn't want to be a superstar anymore. I just want to be. Do you realize that the St. Paul Saints is what the church is supposed to be? Right? A little bit goofy. Some part fun. And most of all, a place not just of second chances, but fourth second chances. The more honest I am about this, the more I hang out with Jesus and with his people, the more this Christian thing, the more this Christianity feels two things at once, both very disturbing and very attractive. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this opportunity to rattle us, to challenge us to think all about our lives, the people we avoid, the places in our hearts and, and minds and bodies that we, sh we fear to show. And I pray, Lord, that you would come in, that you'd make us feel like someone, like we belong, because that's the truth of your gospel. Give us a fourth second chance. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.